Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. What is my biggest worry? With food prices, energy prices up, with prospects for recovery much worse, are we going to see the phenomenon from 2019, people on the street undressed, creating more difficult environment for policymakers to do the right thing? Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And there's not much going right in that economy today, with Russia's war in Ukraine sending food and energy prices through the roof, China facing yet another round of disruptive COVID lockdowns, and many policymakers around the world relearning a 1970s term, stagflation. But as the Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Gorgieva, warned us just then, in a debate at the recent spring meetings of the World Bank and IMF, things could definitely get worse, especially for vulnerable developing countries still dealing with the legacy of COVID-19. So this week, we take a long, hard look at the crisis that might be coming down the track for those economies, with a report from our Washington-based US economy reporter, Eric Martin, and a conversation with the head of the Institute of International Finance, Tim Adams. We also have a dispatch from Paris, asking what comes next for President Emmanuel Macron. He's won re-election, but not, maybe, a positive mandate to get anything done. You'll want to stick around to hear that piece for the accent alone. But let's hear first about that storm brewing in emerging markets. We go out every day looking for semolina, flour, sugar, oil. These are the essential things we live on, and they're not there. This is unbelievable. Find us a solution. You politicians, officials, head of state, find a solution, because the day of starvation is coming. Monthly salaries for citizens are weak. They raise the price of fuel, raise the cost of transportation, and raise taxi fares. How are we going to afford this? Find us a solution, because this isn't a reasonable situation. That was Huda al-Chabi, a teacher and mother of two children in Tunis, where a cash-strapped government has boosted fuel prices at least four times in just over a year, and where shortages are so rampant that market vendors say it's easier to find marijuana than to buy flour. A slew of financial dangers is pushing emerging markets like Tunisia ever closer to defaulting on their debt. Such a crisis could cause currencies to tumble and inflation to soar in the parts of the world least able to afford it. The situation may be the most grim in Sri Lanka, where the rupee has lost 40% of its value this year and protesters are calling for the president to resign. But Ethiopia, Pakistan, Ghana, and El Salvador are also in debt distress themselves, as soaring food and energy prices grip consumers. We can see this train wreck coming uh, towards us. John Lipsky, a former top official at the IMF, one of many global policymakers who have been sounding the alarm. 
it's certainly with the latest financial market developments going to push a large number of low-income countries into uh, the need for debt restructuring. Like so much else, the debt crisis in emerging markets has its origins in the pandemic. Governments across the developing world stepped up their borrowing to cushion the impact from COVID-19. Now, the costs of servicing those debts are on a steep incline, according to the IMF, and a record amount of that debt is held on the balance sheets of local banks in the emerging economies. Those costs are going to keep going up as the Federal Reserve now raises interest rates to combat inflation in the United States, and central banks across the emerging world are forced to do the same. So, the fear is that this all leads to a vicious spiral for vulnerable economies, where banks are forced to pull back on lending as economies slow, and the value of the government bonds sitting on their balance sheets keeps going down. A long line of countries is in rescue talks with the IMF. The World Bank's chief economist, Carmen Reinhart, earlier this month. Disruptions from China's new lockdowns from the impacts uh, yet to be fully felt of the Russia-Ukraine war on, on food prices, on global supply chains. And if, you know, bad came to worse, uh, could there be another episode of financial contagion? All these are risks on the downside. All told, the World Bank estimates 60% of low-income countries are in debt distress already, or at high risk of it. So far, the trouble is brewing in the sort of off-the-radar-screen places investors don't pay much attention to. It was just such a debt crisis in Russia that led to the near collapse of a large hedge fund, long-term capital management, in 1998. Everyone is suffering from the situation, whether they're rich or poor. We don't buy all we need, including the basics. Every 30 days, we buy chicken, which means that we're eating meat once a month. That was Kais al-Yazidi, a truck driver in Tunis. He says some commodities are so scarce that neighborhood merchants have the upper hand, forcing consumers to buy extra items to secure a kilogram of flour or oil. To be sure, many developing nations sell more commodities than they buy, and they're benefiting from rising prices. Some countries in Latin America, for example, are seeing soaring exports, Brazil's currency, the real, is the world's best-performing major currency this year, and Chile's exports in March were up more than 20% from a year earlier. Still, even nations profiting from the surge in commodity prices are suffering from their own internal inflation. At the beginning of the year, we started to feel a huge jump in prices. Vegetables going up to six, five, four reais. That's a big jump. That was Mikhail Edgley, a vegetable seller in Rio de Janeiro, talking about his struggles to make ends meet amid soaring inflation. It could be because of Russia's war, because fertilizers come from there. But the truth is, I don't know. That's what people are saying. But also gasoline is really expensive here. Eight he ice a liter. It's absurd. In Brazil, less than six months ahead of presidential elections, opinion polls show that 75% of the public blames President Jair Bolsonaro's government for a surge in cost of living. Prices in Brazil are up 11.3%, despite the central bank's best efforts to combat it. 
The problem is that, as in many parts of the world, prices feed off each other and higher fuel costs make food more expensive too. I feel pressured, really pressured. All the prices are going up and my salary goes down. It's hard to live this way, you know? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So to talk about some of that and actually just the state of the global economy, um, I'm delighted that we have in London this week Tim Adams, uh, Chief Executive of the Institute for International Finance, which is the Global Association for the Financial Industry. And we just heard, Tim, about the challenges for developing countries. And I know that you and I were both in Washington last week. There was a lot of concern about the dangers coming down the track for them. But I'm struck when I see you doing your interviews today in, in, in London that what many of the Bloomberg journalists are asking you about is bumper bank results. When you see these positive results for banks, but also some of the data we've had showing quite a strong consumer do you think the risk of a recession in the U.S. is overdone? Look, I think uh, being able to pull off the kind of uh, rising rate environment that uh, the Federal Reserve needs to put in place to deal with the, uh, the most pernicious inflationary pressures we've seen in 30 years, to do that and, and, and have a soft landing is going to be very difficult. Uh, I would put the probability at 20%. So can the Federal Reserve pull it off? Sure. Will they? I don't know. I think the best thing to do is prepare for a harder landing. Yeah, we and, had Larry Summers on the other day, and he definitely doesn't rate their chances. Well, and, and, and obviously, Larry's been ahead of the curve on inflation. He was calling for it before anyone else. Turning now to, to the rest of the world, and we've heard in, earlier in the, in the podcast about the impact on the ground of soaring food and energy prices. We're also looking at supply chains being crunched again. You know, we thought we were kind of coming through the worst of the supply chain pressures, but now with Ukraine and more lockdowns coming into China, we're potentially having uh, what our reporters called uh, today a one-two punch for the global recovery. Is that, have things taken a worrying turn when you look at that global picture? It certainly hasn't improved as quickly and as substantially as we would have hoped. We would have thought by now that supply chains had righted. We would have hoped that China would have normalized. But with the lockdowns and what appears to be a continuation of the COVID crisis in China, maybe more, even more complex and uh, more difficult than, than the Chinese often let on, uh, you have to question whether that more optimistic scenario actually is going to come to fruition. And then throw on top of that the war in Ukraine, what that means for uh, food supplies, grains especially, but also fertilizer, and fertilizer is key for farmers, and the price of fertilizer is substantially higher than it was a year ago. And, and one of the very useful things that the Institute for International Finance does is map where capital flows are going in and out of countries, um, often as a result of uh, things that your member banks are doing, uh, and also look at, at how the different movements of debt whether countries are looking vulnerable because of how much debt they have or the, how much they're having to pay for it. 
people like John Lipsky, who we heard in that piece, the former IMF official, he talks about a train wreck coming towards us when he looks at the high levels of debt in some of these quite vulnerable economies, um, the fact that the cost of that debt is going up and inflation is going up, squeezing economic growth. Do you see a train wreck coming? Well, I certainly think there may be a number of small train wrecks. Uh, obviously, the commodity producers are doing Not quite well. Not small for the people who are on the other end of the train. Right, but, but, yeah. the, but the, if you're in the commodity producing and exporting business, this is a pretty good time for you. You're earning lots of export revenue. But we have seen a record level of emerging market debt, and in including especially China, but not just China. And the question is, how can they service that debt? Now, the, on the good side, a lot of it is long duration and is uh, local currency. The downside is that uh, it's variable rate. So as rates go up and they have to roll that debt, even if it's at local currency, uh, then the cost of service of that debt is going to go up. The stock of debt is at all-time high. We have 30 countries now with debt-to-GDP ratios of above 300%. So, uh, you know, it's the, it's the old adage from the Hemingway novel uh, uh, is, uh, how did you go bankrupt slowly than suddenly? And so we do have to watch it. Commodity producers are in better shape than commodity importers, but that could change substantially. Our economists have sort of looked at which countries are most vulnerable to what's happening. And obviously, that we've actually particularly highlighted Turkey and Egypt because they're big food importers, so they're paying a lot more for their food, and they used to trade a lot with Russia, and that trade has been hit. I think Poland also figures on that list. But you have a lot of what you think of as being rather successful, buoyant economies in Asia who are very dependent on those now very expensive food imports, Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines. Are there particular countries that you're worried about? Well, you mentioned Turkey. I was just in Istanbul a few weeks ago, and obviously a great concern because you're an energy and food importer. Uh, and sunflower oil, for example, is a huge staple of the Turkish uh, economy, and Ukraine is the principal producer. So in terms of just importing the basics, Turkey's in a bad situation, and they're running uh, inflation rates of close to 60% at annual rate uh, with a monetary and fiscal policy, which is only exacerbating that. So you have unorthodox policies making things worse. Uh, the Egyptians, I saw them last week during the spring meetings, they're worried about food imports, although they indicated that they had other opportunities and could wrap up domestic production. But that's just not true of so many places around the world. Mm. We've mentioned we've both in Washington, there was a kind of mixture, virtual, real meeting of those central bank governors and treasury finance officials. And I know you will have talked to, to lots of them. The scale of this for some of the countries looking at the inflation that we just haven't seen for a long time, as you mentioned, right. as well as the debt, as well as the fact the Fed is raising interest rates and the uncertainties around supply chains that we're seeing. I mean, the sort of institutions that we normally look to, the World Bank and the IMF, I mean, they're not a match for any of that, surely. I think they're challenged. I think they're challenged by Ukraine, uh, both directly and indirectly because of the spillover effects. I think they're uh, challenged because of inflationary pressures. It's not only th those institutions, but walk around the trading floors of any of the major uh, financial institutions. Most of these people on the trading floors weren't born during the previous inflationary episode. And so it's very new for some people. And I think officials really thought that this would be transitory, and it is not, and may not be for a long time. And so it's very different than what was expected 24 months ago. Tim Adams, thank you very much. Thank you, Stephanie. Investors, commentators, policymakers, pretty much everyone was relieved when Emmanuel Macron won the second round of the French presidential election and his far-right nationalist opponent Marine Le Pen did not. But that victory came not from any burst of enthusiasm for Monsieur Macron, 
but around 8 million French men and women voting while holding their nose. It's not a great start to Mr Macron's second five years in office, and there's a risk that his political stock will fall further in June if his party loses its electoral majority. So as Macron won the election but lost his power, here's Bloomberg's Caroline Gonon in Paris. One More Time by Daft Punk, the soundtrack of Emmanuel Macron's victory on Sunday the 24th of April. He won a second chance to show the French he can reform their country and repair the deep fractures in society. Macron beat the far-right leader Marine Le Pen with more than 58% of the votes in the runoff becoming the first incumbent to be re-elected in France since Jacques Chirac 20 years ago. C'est Emmanuel Macron qui a donc été reconduit à la tête de la France. Emmanuel Macron qui arrive en tête avec 57,6%. Relief or not, Macron and his allies will scarcely have time to celebrate. His nationalist, anti-European opponent won 12 million votes, the most that the national rally has ever achieved in a French national election. And as Emmanuel Macron admitted in his acceptance speech, nearly half of the 17 million who voted for him were simply voting to keep Le Pen out. We have to consider all the difficulties of everyday lives and respond effectively to the anger that has been expressed. Critics across France have attacked him for overlooking the working class more than two-thirds of whom voted for Le Pen. Speaking at Macron's victory rally, Environment Minister Barbara Pompili said it's time to think about how to unite the French population. We must rebuild with everyone without leaving anyone on the sidelines to build a society where people live better, breathe better. Still, we have a strong far-right and high abstention. We need to take it into account. For international partners, Macron's re-election will sound reassuring two months after the start of the war in Ukraine. While Le Pen wanted to leave the military command of NATO and re-establish ties with Russia's Vladimir Putin, Macron plans to continue to be a reliable partner for both NATO and Europe. And France still presides over the EU until the end of June. But the lack of enthusiasm for Macron, despite his victory, could come back to haunt him in the June parliamentary elections. If his party, La République en Marche, loses its majority, it will need to go into coalition with other parties to stay in power, or be forced to live with a hostile government, which might paralyze his second term in office. Here's Publicis chairman Maurice Lévy. We have avoided the worst, and now we have to work for the best. And the best to happen, we'll need to give Macron a large majority at uh, l'Assemblée Nationale. And the lower middle class is feeling frustrated, be- believe that they are not taken care of, that they, have, uh, they are left behind, and that the major issues are not addressed. On the night of her defeat, Marine Le Pen was also sending her sights on the June vote. In defeat, I cannot help but feel a kind of hope. 
For our French and European leaders, this result is evidence that cannot be ignored of how the French people greatly distrust them and a broad aspiration for change. France has rebounded faster than other European economies after the pandemic. But the Bank of France estimates the growth potential is lower now than under Macron's predecessor, François Hollande. Emmanuel Macron has won another chance to make it right, but he'll be held accountable if an anti-establishment candidate gets to power next time around in 2027. That's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, do please rate the show if you like it and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. Also follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson with support from Sommer Sadi. Special thanks to Tim Adams and Caroline Conon, Eric Martin, Gihen Lagmari in Tunis and Andrew Rosati in Rio. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. <laughs>